0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone. Welcome to your podcast, New Books in Economic and Business History. I'm your host, Javier Mejia from Stanford University. And today I have the great pleasure to be with Anna Grishmawa bousse She's a professor at the Department of Political Science here at Stanford, which is also the director of the Europe Center and a senior fellow at the Freemans Poly Institute for International Studies. She's the author of Sacred Foundations, the Religious and Medieval Roots of the European State, a book that was just published by Princeton University Press. We're going to be talking today with her about the book and about her career. Hi, Anna. How are you?
1: Fine, thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: I'm very happy to have you here. The first time that um, I met you, you were in sabbatical there at CAPS up there in the hills at Stanford, and you were precisely working on this manuscript. And so I'm very happy to see the final outcome in, uh, in a very tangible way.
1: It's all about material culture, isn't it? <laughs>
0: Right. (laughs) Let me ask. So before getting to the book, I, I would like to hear a bit about your, your career. Why don't you tell us a bit about who you are? Where are you from? How did you end up being interested in political science? And then where the interest for medieval history emerged? Tell us a bit about about you, please.
1: Sure. So um, my parents and I immigrated from Poland uh, to the United States when I was 10 years old. And I spent my formative years in Kansas, uh, where my father was a professor at the University of Kansas, and then moved to the East Coast for college. And, it, you know, took these fantastic classes from amazing history professors, especially medieval history professors. But like so many other people, you know, I, was, I thought I was going to go into law school. And so I took the LSAT. And a week later realized that that's the last thing i want to do with my life um and instead this rapid turnaround and applied for grad schools um and you know because i'm from poland initially my work was very much focusing on sort of the post-communist developments on how successor parties how communist successor parties remade themselves into good democrats how the post communist state was built and how democratic party competition influenced that formation but then I turned more broadly to religion because I guess, you know, you can take the girl out of the Catholic Church, uh, but the converse doesn't hold. And so I wrote a book about religious influence on contemporary politics and the ways that it was grounded in um, the formation of national identities and their relationship to the church. And then decided to go back even further historically um, and take a look at the role of the Catholic Church in the sort of initial formation of state institutions. Um, in medieval Europe. And this is where those classes that I took in college from these fantastic professors um, really sort of you know, came back all these years later and largely informed how I went about doing the study.
0: So how was your... Or I'm thinking here that my interaction with historians is not always the easiest one. I feel that sometimes they look at you with uh, some sort of suspicious or... or with us some kind. Um, But how was your experience like specifically going into medieval studies, right? Which is a community fairly small of people that are very focused on sources and they're a very specific type of people. Uh, How do you feel? Like, do you interact at all with them? How was the experience of getting into those uh, fields?
1: You know, I think I would say two things. One is that... um, you're right. Historians do view social scientists very skeptically. I think they view the idea of broad generalizations as being almost offensive to their craft, which is all about context and nuance, and sort of you know, make create, you know, crafting an argument through sort of very specific pieces of evidence assembled very intricately. Um, but on the other hand, I think, you know, there's sort of a great deal of sympathy, partly because so many social scientists have been traversing this territory. You know, there are a lot of, hist- you know, economic historians like David Cantoni, Noam Juchman, um, you know, Van Zanden, Boring, Bosker, you know, these fantastic scholars who've been examining historical, Mark Diceko, um, who've been examining historical data that goes back to in some cases, you know, the 10th century and even earlier, and have been using it to construct social scientific arguments. So I think given this kind of turn in historical political economy and given the sort of readiness with which social science now uses historical data, I think we're building bridges, you know, willy-nilly, even if I think, you know, what we would consider explanations, historians would consider sort of, you know, unfair teleology. Um, but, you know, I think that's that's still something to... Uh, it's 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 an interesting time to be a social scientist interested in history. I would put it that way.
0: Yeah, yeah. I'm, and, I mean, your comments make me think about how this is going to evolve over time, that if eventually we're going to become an independent type of discipline or something where <laughs> historians and political scientists and economists can live happily. Um, but I want to start to... Um, begin our conversation on the book and before getting into the the main argument that that you explore, um, one of the, what I feel is one of the aims of the book is to bring the conversation of state formation in Europe earlier in time, right? Uh, So what it seems to be the dominant approach is one that points out to early modern period uh, when trying to understand the origins of, of the European or the modern state. And a good part of what you do in the book is trying to say like, Hey, this is much uh, more antique and it can take place in, in, in the early medieval period. Um, and before again, hearing about the arguments for that, uh, I, I would like to hear what made you think that that was the keys. What did you feel that was missing in that literature that um, require a proper response and spending years writing this book?
1: Oh, that's a loaded question. Um, you know, I think the idea that emerges from a lot of the literature on sort of bellicist approach to state formation, you know, whether it's all of which locate state formation in the early modern period, whether it's Tilly, um, you know, Downing, Anderson, Ertman, there's a general sort of sense that, you know, especially in Tilly, that institutions of taxation and parliament sort of emerge as functional um, responses to very expensive early modern warfare. And in this story, and this is something that also, you know, Northern wine take up, basically what happens is that you have this very expensive early modern warfare that necessitates some kind of a bargaining over resources between the king and the nobles. And as a result, we have these bargains struck that basically on one hand, engender parliaments, on the other hand, uh, increase the possibility for the king to get revenue through taxation. But we know for a fact that you know both taxation and parliaments, A, precede the early modern era. They were around in the 1200s. And B, if this really were the case, then we wouldn't see so many absolutist regimes, right, that didn't rely on parliaments emerge out of the early modern period. So I think there was a sort of a frustration with what seems to be an incompleteness of at least sort of, you know, the canonical story that we're being told in grad school. Um, and, that, you know, and that sort of led me to explore, well, where did these institutions actually come from? And it turns out that you know both historians and others have written quite a bit about the ways in which these institutions arose much earlier, and they arose not out of as functional you know, responses to the needs of warfare but as the, you know, as the, both sort of as templates from the church and as sort of councils for the king himself.
0: So your, your story is one that has two main characters. So on the one hand, you have the Catholic church, and then on the other one, you have uh, the secular rulers, right? Um, right? You don't try to do a comparative work in the sense of, you're not comparing Europe with uh, East Asia or something like that, but it seems that Europe has this very specific particularities in terms of the interaction of those, th- these two characters, what were those interactions and or, or those particularities, right? So um, right. one of them seems that it's uh, the fairly early independence between those uh, two powers. Can you say a bit about that? What's this, essence that seems to be different between Europe and other processes of of state formation in the world?
1: Right. So I think the first thing to note, and I think the first thing that scholars have noted, is that whereas you see large centralized empires, both in China and in the Middle East, in Europe you have an incredibly fragmented landscape of kingdoms, principalities, duchies, bishoprics all of whom are vying for power. And there's basically no single actor that establishes that kind of hegemonic control that you see, for example, in China. And so that's already, I think, a big difference. And this was sort of taken as basically just a given. So you know some kind of an exogenous condition that um, occurred after the collapse of the Roman Empire. But one of the things that I argue in this book is that it's actually quite deliberate. And it's deliberate because the Catholic Church was actually under the thumb of what becomes known as the Holy Roman Empire. Secular rulers would name the popes, they would name bishops, um, who were incredibly important because they were both royal administrators and uh, spiritual emissaries of the pope. And in many ways, these secular rulers would control the church. And it's only in the, in the 11th century that the church basically, the papacy, Pope Gregory Seventh, to be exact, begins this process of both centralizing the church within and of really asserting autonomy from without. And once that process gets under, under underway, the papacy gains enormous amounts of power, largely because it has so much wealth and so much human capital and has an organizational reach that no other ruler can have. And as it does so, what it, one of the first things that it does is to try and keep Europe fragmented, right? It doesn't want a large hegemon that would sound, that would basically act as a counterweight to the papacy, a large hegemon that could basically hold the papacy and the church under its thumb. And so it goes after the Holy Roman Empire. It really fragments that entire area. You know, the Holy Roman Empire doesn't become a single state until basically the 19th century. As a result, um, and so that fragmentation, which is seen as so sort of characteristic of Europe and seen as so unique to Europe, is directly the outcome of this conflict between the church and secular rulers. There are other ways in which Europe is seen as unique. Um, so, for example. The idea of institutions like parliaments, which are assemblies that express both consent and representation, is, again, unique to Europe. But as I argue in the book, that owes a lot to religious or to church concepts of representation and of sort of, you know, binding powers. Um, we also see, you know, independent autonomous universities in Europe, um, almost alone among the other continents. They're not, you know, owned by the state. They're not run by the state. Um, and those universities basically ar- arise largely because of the rediscovery of law that the church participates in. And you had this phenomenon where, you know, popes and emperors sort of race to charter universities. And so the story of, you know, human capital in Europe and the preponderance of universities in the rule of law, again, has a lot to do with sort of the imitation of these uh, earlier church templates and with the kind of rivalry between um, the church and state in an attempt to basically assert church autonomy.
0: I want to ask you a bit more about that uh, rivalry between uh, church and the secular powers. What were the tools that um, were used by the church to to fight that war, right? Like how did the right. Pope maintain or try to keep uh, Europe fragmented?
1: So the church basically relies on three different kinds of weapons. Um, The first of these are purely spiritual weapons. Um, And these are excommunications and interdicts. And it turns out those actually don't work so well. So, you know, the record holder is the Holy Roman Emperor Henry IV, who gets excommunicated five times by three different popes, but it doesn't prevent him from basically governing for decades and, you know, being an incredibly successful emperor. So the popes very quickly find out that excommunications or sort of, you know, placing an entire community under interdict simply isn't very very effective. So they turn to basically sort of classic secular weapons. They don't, they very rarely lead armies themselves. When they do, it almost inevitably ends in disaster um, in the medieval period. But what they do instead is to build all kinds of alliances and coalitions. And they basically fund wars by proxy and they fund the depositions of rulers by allied uh, secular you know, kings and princes. So in effect, they basically sort of, you know, act as sort of funders and puppet masters for a whole bunch of, sort of you know, rulers who are already vying for power with the Holy Roman Empire or with France or with whatever sort of, you know, region the Pope seems to favor at the time. And the third set of weapons um, that work quite well are political crusades. So we think of a crusade as this expedition to the far off east, as a way of regaining Jerusalem and bringing back, you know, Edessa under under the fold. But in fact, the modal crusade is a political one, and it's launched against a ruler within Europe that the pope finds to be disloyal or wayward or somehow, you know, not uh, loyal enough to the pope. And so these are the three kinds of weapons, you know, sort of the, the spiritual ones that don't work so well, the coalitions and alliances that work very well. Um, and the papal crusades. Uh, and I'm actually collecting a huge data set right now of all the crusades um, and the role that the popes, you know, and the, sort of the roles that the popes played in basically overturning rulers through the crusades.
0: I'm a bit curious about that. And in, in general, in the way you you speak and and, and you talk about the, the church and in, in your book, it feels like a very effective type of organization. One uh, that... Uh, seems to work fairly well on the inside and also one that on the one hand had much more human capital and not only that, mm-hmm. probably more even social capital. Maybe that's not probably the, the the way in which you frame it, but it seems to be, um, it seems to be well connected both with the masses and also with, uh, with uh, rulers and elites. Right? Um how do you think about that? What were the sources of uh, success of the church as an organization? What kept the effectiveness and and those um, uh, like valuable assets uh, that some were tangible in terms of like just wealth, but some of them were these things that are not obvious that were valuable and that were uh, possible to maintain over time.
1: Right. So you know, I think the the first thing I would say is that the church was a very effective organization, relatively speaking, right? So this is a time where we can't really speak about anything resembling a modern state. There are no impersonal bureaucracies. There are no clearly defined boundaries. You know, there's a lot of internal competition for authority, and so relative to that, the church seems a pretty effective organization, and it's effective partly because of these reforms that Gregory the Seventh introduces in the 11th century. That are designed to really sort of impose a hierarchy within the church, um, sort of purge it of basically all kinds of sort of you know uh, ancillary or you know basically rent seeking behavior um, to ensure that the church functions as an effective organization that can deploy both its wealth and its human capital, sort of you know, effectively and consistently. So I think you know the wealth certainly helps. the uh, human capital certainly helps. But there's also an enormous amount of spiritual authority, right? I mean, medieval life is suffused with religion. The idea of being an atheist or of not believing in God is just, it's beyond the sort of comprehension of, I think, many people at the time. Um, you have a lot of, sort of concern in the 12th century of heretics and sort of, you know, keeping the religion pure. And all that has to do with the fact that the church has this enormous spiritual authority within Europe. It is the one organization that can promise eternal salvation, right? No ruler, no matter how ambitious or how powerful, would ever make that claim. But the Pope and the church can make that claim, that, you know, the way to eternal salvation is through the church. Um, and that gives the church enormous spiritual authority. It doesn't mean that it's always listened to. There are plenty of things on which the church is totally ignored, Um you know, there's lots of evidence that anti-usury laws are ignored, that laws against, uh, you know, extramarital sex are ignored. Even the, so, you know, the church's preference for electing kings, all of that gets ignored widely. I mean, human beings are human beings. But nonetheless, you know, the church can really reach out to the masses, both with, with its organizational presence. There's a bishopric and a cathedral and a monastery nearly everywhere. And with the spiritual authority that makes it sort of you know, the unique source of salvation in Europe.
0: So we talked about a bit ago about this uh, rivalry between the church and, and 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 the kings, and that was an important force. But you also have described uh, a force that was related to emulation and and probably mm-hmm. cooperation. Um, what what did that look like? And and I'm, I'm, I want to ask you at some point when you mention crusades. Uh, I went back to think about the classical crusades to the new East and, and right. it always, they, they are always described as this um, cooperative effort uh, in which right. the main signal was basically the, uh, the guide of the Pope. And so I want to ask you a bit about that. What was the, the, the figure of, of the church as a coordinator among um, secular rulers?
1: So the so some of the key characteristics of, a, of the crusade are that it gets called by the Pope and that the participants are offered so-called crusader privileges. So in effect, basically, they're sort of told that, you know, all kinds of indulgences, all kinds of promise of, you know, spiritual benefit for participating in the crusade. And the Pope then relies on secular rulers to bring together the men and the resources, you know, the supply wagons the, um, to coordinate all the logistics. So only the Pope can call a crusade, and once called, those crusades will offer all kinds of privileges to the crusaders, but it's exactly as you say. There's an enormous amount of coordination involved with the secular rulers, and there are, you know, the historical record is littered with historical rulers who don't live up to their promises of either funding or people or of rulers that decide to go off on a crusade by themselves, the sacking of Constantinople. I mean, all these things that the Pope definitely would not want to see happen. So there's not only just coordination, but there's also a massive principal agent problem where, you know, the Pope can basically ask these rulers, and the rulers will agree, to go on a crusade, but he has very little way of controlling what they do once they actually set off, right? And so you have all these incidents of basically massive friend-seeking and sort of, you know, uh, shirking behavior left, right, and center – and the Pope can't do anything about it. But it is at least initially very much a coordination where sort of you know the Pope promises the calls crusade, he coordinates, he promises the spiritual benefits, and the rulers respond um and gather the forces and the the materials necessary for the crusade.
0: So one I'm I'm thinking still about this. Um, um... Which I I don't know like I mean like the the cooperation that that's something that I find very interesting about your argument that there's this um, intertwined interaction between cooperation and and competition and, mm-hmm. and now I'm thinking about the the adoption of practices that were common uh, among the church uh, by 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 secular rulers and. And one of the things you mentioned is the adoption of of law and and decision-making rules within secular environments. Can you say a bit ab- about that please?
1: Sure. So again, given sort of you know the church's relative organ- organizational advantages it, and its spiritual authority, it offers some attractive templates for how to run things. And we can sort of divide these into sort of three different categories. There's they're literally administrative templates, where the division of labor in the papal courts and the way of doing things in the papal court gets imitated by secular rulers. And a lot of the times, this has to do with the fact that you have bishops who act both as, sort of, you know, the pope's emissaries, but who also act as royal administrators. So until the sixteenth century, right? You know, the royal chancellor in England, for example, is a Catholic bishop. Um, always. That's just that's you know that's just who he he always is. So there's an enormous amount of staffing with high-ranking clergy, and they basically act as conduits for, you know, document templates, for how to write a petition, for how to organize your finances, making sure that you have, you know, inputs, outputs, and auditing procedures, all of which are imported directly from the papal curia. So there's that kind of direct emulation. Um, When it comes to law and parliaments, uh, there's some, and even, I think, more interesting story to be told. So during this conflict between Gregory Seventh and, you know, Henry IV, this initial conflict between this newly ascended papacy and the Holy Roman Empire, what you have basically is the rediscovery of Roman law. So there are these codices that have been around for a while, you know, they get rediscovered in a monastery, and very quickly they get systematized and put forth. And law, two, th- two things follow. One is that law starts being used as a weapon. So rather than fighting a battle, you see popes and emperors both argue using legal arguments. Right, the pope uses all kinds of legal arguments to assert his authority, and to sort of you know downplay imperial authority over other rulers. Um, and in this way, basically, you also have the you know the found the systematization of canon law as well, church law, roughly seventy years later. And the two are basically constantly being used in courts, in statute making, and you know in legal decisions. So they become intertwined to the point that Roman law and canon law form the sort of you know the key core of current European civil law. Those are the sort of, you know the two key aspects of it. That and it's almost impossible in some cases to figure out you know what comes from what because the church uses Roman law and secular courts use canon law, you know, willy nilly. Yeah, Um, So that's one thing that happens. The other thing that happens is that because the law is seen as such an attractive way to adjudicate disputes, it's a lot cheaper. It's a lot less bloody. You know, it's a lot. And frankly, it's a lot more decisive. Right. A legal decision binds in ways that a one battle may not. Both uh, secular and religious authorities start to really race to have more legal experts, to have that legal expertise. And so what do they do? They basically help along universities. The first university in, the, you know, in Europe, in Bologna, it was founded in 1088, during the height of this conflict, and was founded as a law school. Um, and so that kind of proliferation of law schools all over Europe basically allows both church and uh, secular rulers to get these legal experts. And it really leads them to sort of charter universities. So it's not that they own the universities, they don't run the universities, but they offer all kinds of privileges and protection for university students and university professors. Um, and so they basically start to compete because if you, know, if you charter the university, then you get the first pick of the, of the experts that come from it. So the story of law is a really fascinating one where you have sort of, you know, this relatively closely spaced discovery of both canon and civil law and their systematization the intertwining of these two corpuses of law to form European civil law. And at the same time, this is sort of a huge proliferation of human capital by founding the law schools, by chartering them, and by relying on those legal experts. And this, by the way, is how the church eventually becomes obsolete, right? Because once you have all these legal experts that have been trained in the law schools, you no longer need clergy and bishops nearly as much as you used to, right? They no longer need to be the judges. You have your own secular experts um, that can serve as judges. So that I think, you know, is sort of a fantastic story of how um, both sort you of know, secular and religious concepts of law intertwined to produce what we now think of as rule of law in Europe. Um, and the story of parliament is you know also an interesting one because the whole idea of um, that you know if there's taxation, then those who will be taxed have to express their consent to taxation. That idea is taken directly from church councils. Um, The idea of proctorial representation where, you know, a town or um, an area can send a representative and that representative can make binding decisions on behalf of the community. That's also taken directly from church councils because they basically wanted to get, you know, have clergy come to the councils, but couldn't, of course, host everyone. So they basically would elect representatives. And finally, even the concept of majority rules rather than consent is a church invention, and all of these basically then flow directly from church councils to nascent parliaments, and they flow through the bishops. The bishops in nearly all the countries in Europe have representation in the parliament, and there they insist that you know the same rule that taxation requires consent be applied in secular parliaments as well. Um, and so you know this is a clear example of both sort of conceptual borrowing and sort of you know uh, personal insistence on these rules being enforced comes directly directly from the church.
0: I think it's fascinating all like that part of the, of your argument. Um, Because for someone that does economic history, we're so focused on modernity as well and, and human capital accumulation, institutional innovation also seems to be something of, of, of the modern world. And you describe like quite extensively how, it was not exactly the case, right? So it feels also like a rediscovery of, um, of probably different foundations uh, at an economic level. And I, I love like that, that element in in, in the book. Um, but I, I want to ask you, yeah, go ahead, please. Uh, uh,
1: no, I just wanted to mention something, you know, I think, you know, there's a huge focus on the culture of growth and, you know, the sort of the Shapley hypothesis and, you know, and Joel Milker's work and Deirdre McCloskey's work on the sort of, you know, culture of innovation and of, of sort of discovery and the sort of celebration of human capital in a way. Um, and what's ironic is that this is sort of, you know, attributed to both the early modern period and in some versions of this thesis, to Protestants, right, and to their individualism, their sort of competitiveness, their sort of, you know, different, very different, unmediated relationship to God. But we see all these things already there on the ground in the 12th century and 11th century in medieval Europe. Again, sort of, you know, this enormous sort of ferment, this intellectual ferment in the 12th century, and the rediscovery of Aristotle in the 13th, you know, leads basically to this enormous flowering of sort of a culture of, of, inquiry and of research and of disputation, all of which you know, predates the early modern period by 400 years. Um, and so the Catholic Church is actually, sort of, you know, I, in this version of the argument, right? actually is more favorably, it's not, it, the Catholic Church isn't opposed, but in fact, it's very sort of favorably situated to support you know, the growth of human capital, um, inquiry, research, uh, you know, argue, scientific arguments, and so on.
0: Now that you mentioned um, the Reformation and Protestantism, um, how does that fit into your story? It arrives later, but in a certain way, is like a direct competition for these spiritual prerogatives that the, the church had. What What's the story there?
1: So, you know, um, the Reformation basically is kind of the final nail in the coffin because church... Um, so, so church influence has already really decreased in the 15th century and the 16th century. The church basically overreaches. And so repeatedly, popes overreach. They use their power poorly. The church itself is forced into you know, Avignon, into basically what's known as the uh, the Babylonian captivity. And after that, there's a split within the church where there's both a Roman and an Avignon papacy. And with that split, the Great Schism, um, you basically see an enormous loss of church power and influence within Europe. And that already is happening in the 14th and early 15th century. So the Reformation, when it takes off, um, has an interesting relationship to this earlier story of church influence in two ways. One is that um, it takes off in the Holy Roman Empire, precisely the area where the church was most successful in fragmenting authority. So initially, Luther is protected by his, you know, prince by Frederick, against the Emperor Charles V, who's very much a Catholic. And were it not for the church's earlier success in fragmenting the Holy Roman Empire, um, the Reformation could not have taken off the way it did. But it did because there are all these, sort of, you know, small principalities that would protect Protestants against, sort of, you know, the demands of the Catholic Church to do away with them. So one, you know, the, the Protestant Reformation really ironically takes up in precisely the lands where the church was earlier, much, uh, was much more successful in fragmenting authority. Secondly, the church responds too late to, <clears throat> excuse me, to the reformation of the Council of Trent. And in response so late, because it's worried that basically, you know, its own sort of propagation of representation and councils has led to something called conciliarism within the church, which is the idea that councils and assemblies basically trump uh, popes and rulers. And they're worried that if they hold a council that somehow would address the Reformation directly, these people who sort of, you know, prize and, and give primacy to councils would basically run a roughshod over the popes. And so its own earlier innovations and its own earlier successes stymie the church's response to the Reformation. And the reformation largely takes off as successfully as it does because the church is unable to respond to it given these earlier successes, both in promoting fragmentation and in promoting kind of conciliar thinking within its ranks.
0: Let me ask you one question um, related, I, I guess, to like the big picture of um, of your argument. And, and this comes from... Uh, I guess my own interest in like the Latin world, right, and and most of your uh, the core of your argument takes place in uh, like the Germanic uh, world, right. How do you how do these other places in Europe uh, fit into your story, right? I guess that well, a good part of the, uh, the Iberian Peninsula was under Muslim control, but What was happening in France, in, well, northern Spain, are they just like outliers? Are they interacted and part of, in a peripheral way of the story, or is it just the the same part of the story, uh, and we're just not, we have just like softer type of evidence?
1: So I think they're very much part of the story. And the empirical evidence in the book, uh, you know, controls for the Holy Roman Empire, but it encompasses all of Europe. So we basically have, you know, all of Europe divided into 100 by 100 kilometer grid cells, from, you know, 900 to 1850, um, which, of course, huge missing data problems. But the these conclusions basically apply to all of Europe. But the story of Spain, for example, is absolutely fascinating because the popes endow, you know, relatively late in the game, endow the reconquista with crusade privileges, right? And they basically empower sort of, you know, Christian rulers to sort of start pushing out um, the Muslim rulers of Spain, you know, in the name of the church as well. And the fascinating story there is of how, you know, those rulers, especially by the time of Ferdinand and Isabella, actually, you know, gain enormous power within, you know, this is Spain is relatively centralized by European standards. And those rulers gain so much power that they're able to then start exacting concessions from the papacy. And basically saying, you know, actually, we want to continue to name our own bishops. And actually, because we're so important to the survivor of Catholicism, we need all kinds of concessions from the papacy regarding taxes um, and the publication of papal decrees in Spain and so on. And so it's this sort of fantastic story of all these sort of you know, human capital and institutional resources that flow to Spain that are then used to enormously strengthen the Spanish monarchs against the church. Um, and so by the 15th century, by the late 15th, early 16th century, you have sort of you know, Spanish monarchs you know, taking over the Inquisition, for example. You know, the this, this story that, that we're told is that the Inquisition is this sort of, you know, church run amok in Spain. But in fact, it's controlled by the secular monarchs, right? It's, you know, it's basically what the, the church will only do what the secular monarchs will allow it to do. And, you know, they hand over the victims if they're executed back to the secular state. And so they have far less power than we would have thought previously, given the fact that the monarchs actually exert a considerable control um, over the church and over the Inquisition by the 16th century.
0: You know, that's um, a fascinating feature of your story that it has this sort of tragic element out of it. You know, the, the church is like pushing so hard to keep their power and precisely in that process, by the end of the day, it's actually losing its relevance. It's a familiar really story, fun. right?
1: You hand over all these resources. Um, it's coming. Kind of, you know, I think any parent of a teenager would identify with this, because you hand over all these resources and advice, and the sort of, you know, the secular state takes it, but then grows resentful about it, and so sort of, you know, asserts independence, which in many ways is you know exactly as it should be. Um, it certainly benefits uh, Europe to have a very independent set of secular rulers. But it doesn't do away with the sort of church influence earlier on and the kind of enormous shaping that it did of church institutions.
0: That's a pretty good analogy, and and I would like to get back to, I guess, the beginning of our conversation, uh, but to expand a bit in that direction. So, in terms of what are like the big lessons of of your story and your book, and and I I would like to hear about uh, your thoughts as. Uh, As someone who knows very well the contemporary influence of religion and and political outcomes, how do you think that these historical roots of the emergence of the state and the influence of of religion um, are insightful to think about the role of religion now? So I'm thinking, for instance, about your expertise in the Soviet bloc and and how important it (laughs) was the prohibition of religion at some point as part of the the, the communist project, um, which eventually probably was not as successful in the very long term. And maybe it's because precisely there are these very, very profound roots that are there. How do you think about all these things from a contemporary uh, perspective?
1: Right. So, you know, I don't, <clears throat> excuse me, the, the book doesn't argue that, you know, we see evidence of some direct influence of the medieval church on contemporary politics. I think I would view this much more as a stage setting, right? So a lot of the familiar institutions, whether direct taxation or parliamentary representation or European civil law, were fundamentally shaped by this earlier medieval church influence. Um, but, you know, you have massive border changes, you have massive population shifts, um, you have h- several huge wars that totally transform Europe, whether, you know, the 40 years war or World War One or World War II, right? in ways that sort of, you know, basically, in many cases, create rubble out of what used to be this institutional landscape. But what I do see the influences, I think, you know, the, the sort of the big takeaway that I draw from this is that the most secular of institutions can have religious roots. And what matters is sort of making sure that the religious arguments don't carry primacy in those institutions, but they can nonetheless, you know, religious institutions can nonetheless sort of, you or sorry, secular institutions can have these very religious roots. And that doesn't, that's not necessarily a bad thing They can be fully functional despite having um, roots that are not necessarily democracy promoting, or in fact, might be antithetical to democracy. Um, so I think the first big takeaway is that sort of the most secular of institutions can have religious roots. And so we ought to be very careful about sort of, you know, casting aspersions on religion and religious authorities, because they might be more helpful um, in institutional creation than we might think. Um, I think the second big lesson is to sort of, you know, Europe, European state formation is taken almost as a truism, right? We all learn Tilly in grad school or come across him as undergrads. We all think this is a canonical story of state formation. And so many scholars have found it Wanting in Latin America, in Asia, in Africa, where basically the story doesn't fit. And it turns out that the story doesn't really fit in Europe either. So maybe before sort of you know, exporting these truisms to other places and being surprised that it doesn't fit, we ought to sort of figure out first whether in this canonical case of state formation in Europe, the truisms ever held in the first place. Um, and I think the third sort of big takeaway is that, you know, related to that, is that state formation is incredibly complicated. And it's not just you know it's not reducible to just war or just contracts. It's going to look very different in, in different places. It's going to involve multiple forces and their interaction. And in some cases it's going to involve this kind of imposition from above. In others it's going to be sort of you know, organic bottom-up solutions. There's the impact of colonialism and of natural resources. And so we ought to be very careful about any kind of a monocausal explanation of state formation, um, either in the modern era or historically.
0: I'm very glad that we're finishing on that note about bringing back <laughs> complexity in an environment that appreciates so much um, unicausal fancy, and sexy stories. So I'm, I'm right, very glad that, uh, that your book captures that uh, so well. Well, it was very fun uh, talking to you. Thanks a lot for writing such a fascinating book, for taking time to talk to us. I I hope to to see you soon, Anna.
1: Wonderful. Thank you so much. This is a real pleasure and uh, see you soon on campus.